Greetings, traveler. Welcome again to Killing the Great White Male. Welcome to episode 20. Episode 20 feels kind of epic, so I'm going to say it again. Episode 20. Awesome. Uh, last time we left off talking about my grandpa and kind of looking at the long line of creative men in, in, in my particular family, I got to say, like, even just reflecting on what this meant, um, it it reminded me how important relationships with um, those that have gone before us really are. It gave me an understanding of like why I turned out the way I did, <laughs> why I've always had a heart for um, folks that are marginalized. And it challenges me, I think, as a parent, and it challenges me as a, as a citizen to, to constantly be talking about the fact that we don't raise people in vacuums. Um, it matters. It matters who we are as parents. It matters who we are as anywhere that we're, we're examples or somebody who sets a tone for or sets a culture, um, that it matters. Because the more I look at this line in my family, the more I understand how I, I became somebody who is sitting where I am today and knowing that it's it's time to end this paper doll that is the great white male and is able to talk about what's at stake for me in in Black Lives Matter or in, in the Me Too movement, what parts of myself I'm getting to reclaim by doing this work. So I guess that's the uh, meta-philosophical thing for, for today, uh, but uh, here we go. Let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. Now, what did he grow up with? I don't know. Yeah. Because I never met any of his his family, uh, except for um, his two sisters. Um, but at any rate, uh, they were very um, free, free people, too, uh, for ladies of the day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> My aunt was her own person, that's for sure. Is this Aunt Dorothy? Yeah, Aunt Dorothy and Aunt Charlotte, both of them were their own person. So I don't remember ever meeting Aunt Charlotte. No, you you may not have. Uh, although as a little guy, um, you did meet her because we took you to, she worked some of the time. Uh, she worked at the, mm, I'll think of it, the the place where the, where the bathing Bathing in San Francisco, the open waters bathing, Sutro's. So she worked at Sutro's, um, especially when um, all kinds of, um, they bought and stored all kinds of stuff from the carnival um, on the beach and everything. Oh, wow. At any rate, so we took you there a couple of times to uh, see the history with the Penny Arcade and all that kind of stuff. Oh my gosh! And, yeah. So at any rate, you you and the big ice skating ring that was in Sutro's, but you wouldn't probably remember that. But that was probably the only time you met her. Huh. I yeah. I mean, I remember Dorothy. I mean, she she uh, regrets I have about my world in my teens and twenties. Like she she wrote to me so faithfully, so p supportively, um, and mm. I. I rarely wrote or called her back, um, but it was yeah, it always yeah. meant so much to me. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And when or when she wrote to us, she always wrote um, dear ones. You yes. Know? And that, you know, isn't that funny? And I would always remember that. But yes, yeah, she was she was very faithful that way. So much so that her husband, uh, Uncle Uncle Arthur, Uncle yeah, um, uh, in his latter years, he always mm, kind of chided her for continuing to write to all of us hmm. with with very little mm, response on our part. Yeah, but she just knew that was normal. She's that's that's who people are, <laughs> and that's who she is. Like that's that's yes. I think the thing that yes. sitting on yes. this side of of beginning to understand what faithfulness really means is it has nothing to do with the relationship and what's reciprocated and everything to do with this is who I am. And, right. and I just like it, it allow. I, I don't know it when I, when I release the self judgment a little bit, um, <laughs> just to, to see honestly and wonder what, which was she getting out of that? What was she, you know, what was her view on this? What, yeah, that's a whole nother yeah. topic. But <laughs> yeah. you got a whole nother podcast there, kid. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, I mean, to kind of circle back, one of the one of the things that struck me from the book was the replication of this stuff over time, and both the like we I think I can trace the like men who can do emotions thing in our family like from grandpa even though he also had the i mean what a, what a lot of people would call and and i do um what a lot of people would call toxic masculinity bits too you know when, oh yeah when i think of the stories that i hear now from you about you know about trumpet playing versus being a conductor and i remember that moment when i was so proud to tell him i was going to become a pastor and his response was why would you waste your life that way um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just this, like these weird sideways jutting parts of him that, cause that's not him. That's not his center. It's not his core. It's not who I loved. Um, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and yet that is the system that he lived in. Yeah. The patriarchal system. That was yeah. the death. It was his death of a thousand cuts. Cause here's this yeah. amazing creative soul. I, I, uh, have to look and see that I, like I had a guitar that he made by hand, yes. you know, right? Like he just did things like this. He's always the artist. And I have yeah, no, yeah. like what he must've gone through, um, to, to hold on to that part of himself must've been incredibly intense. Um, but anyway, yeah, say more. You were, you were going. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but boy, that is, that is really true to, um, and, and I don't know that it was in the front of his head that he was no. fighting that, you know, but he obviously did. Yeah. No, I doubt, yeah. doubt very seriously because it came out sideways. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Like, at least when we're thinking about something, we have a chance of catching it before that kind of shit comes out sideways. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What else is here? Um, well... You know the uh, talking about patriarchy again. Yeah. Um, you have to think of how things have changed. Uh, I can only look at you know my own field of as a conductor. I mean, 
think about think about the rumors of Toscanini. Yeah. Right. Uh, he never made mistakes. Yeah. Perfection. Uh, yeah. You know, God God told me uh, how this music should go, and you're getting in the way. Yep. Uh, you know, <laughs> things like that. And and of course, the, whether it's true or not, the famous uh, the famous story about him carrying a derringer in his pocket. So that if a musician didn't follow, you know, he could shoot them. Oh my now, God. Yeah. True or not. You know, I mean, the rumor was there while the musicians were there Yeah. and, uh, and only, uh, men could play in the NBC orchestra at the time, you know, all those kinds of things. Now, of course we're talking, he lived the 1860s to what, 1950 something. Yeah. You know, but, but still, you know, that's, and then we come to today, major conductors, you know, Michael Tilson Thomas. Yeah. You know, a, a, a collaborative, not a dictator like Toscanini, but a very collaborative conductor. And that wouldn't have happened during Toscanini's time. They couldn't happen. Um, well, and, and that's, I, I think that's the interesting thing is that um, to watch stuff like that happen, it's one thing to say, you know, because of the way we we coordinate as musicians, we need somebody to stand in a certain place of responsibility. Yeah. Right? right. And that is not power. Um, yes. It becomes something else. It becomes like that's a collaboration. I have a responsibility when I'm playing a solo trumpet part. You know. Right. It's a responsibility, and this person has a different responsibility, and so. Like, but those things get co-opted so easily by a system. I love, like, one of the things I appreciate about Bell Hooks is her putting the words to, God, where, of the, uh, that it's not just patriarchy, that she, she articulates that it's imperialist, um, capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, that that's yeah. kind of the context that she puts it in. Because one of the things that I hear in there, i begun examining perfection as a as a tool of capitalism that it and so it it gets the patriarchal power over kind of exerts you know is in relationship with this perfectionistic strain that is very much a capitalistic notion um because something is more valuable if it's considered more perfect um and and so like in in that story of him like i hear all of this in play um, oh yeah like it's all there that's terrifying. I can't imagine thinking that my conductor had a fucking gun in his pocket. <laughs> even if, even if, even if it wasn't true. Exactly. It's the thought. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you come to, to somebody like Michael Tilson Thomas, who on, on film yeah. is conducting along and he, he cues the first trumpet and the first trumpet player shakes his head. And Tilson looks down at the score because he's got it memorized. He looks down at the score and he looks up and he, touches his heart, you know, sorry, and he conducts along, and he cues him a second time, and the trumpet player goes, and basically the whole orchestra kind of looked at him go, shaking their head, <laughs> you know? I mean, and why would they do that? Because they're participating in this making of music, and they knew he was wrong, and he was admitting it, and they, they all kind of said, just wait a minute, here it is, yeah. this this next one. And then he cues him, and of course he gets this huge smile, and the trumpet player plays it absolutely beautifully. But you know, it's it, that never would have happened for Toscanini. 
Yes, because it required he never, he, being able to be wrong. Yeah, exactly. And have and that not Dudamel. be. Yeah, Dudamel, the same thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 very interesting in in the field of the band. You know, um, Ravelli, who was during the 30s and the 70s, you know, conducting the University of Michigan. It, the stories of, of him are just very scary, you know, just mm. ripping people out and, you know, and totally. And um, the same kind of demand uh, as Toscanini. And here we are at, like, you know, University of Michigan now with Heathcock, who is a collaborative conductor. Yeah. He expects his musicians to to talk to him about how they feel this should go or, you know, all those kinds of things. And yet, no matter what happens there, it still has to come down to a person making decision who, in that case, would be Heathcock. Um, but the conductor has to make that decision. That's a different kind of... Just um, like the musician has to make a decision, you know, when they, the nuance that they yep. put on that little phrase. Yep. yep. And, and that's different than the kind of thing I think that she's talking about when she talks about the control yeah. and um, dictatorship and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I... And the, the, other, the other thing I was interested about um, when, when she talks about patriarchy, I don't remember her ever saying anything about bullies. But doesn't the patriarchal system that we have, especially in the United States, doesn't that create bullies? Yes. Yeah. Believe it's, believe it's open to bullies? Oh, absolutely. You know, that yeah, the control of, her, uh, of, of, the, of the weaker person. Yep. You know? The creation of fear as a, yeah. as a way to control. Yeah, that's right. Whether that fear be physical or mental or whatever. Yeah. It's a very scary thing. It it absolutely is. And it uh I so I'm reminded that, that, that the book was written in two thousand four. And yes. so yeah. it um it it's missing as I bullying has become very much a conversation in the last five years. Some of us, especially those of us who are men who uh were more emotionally like connected. Um know a lot about bullying. <laughs> I know I was yeah, bullied yeah. horribly. <laughs> yeah. Um uh but it hadn't become a, a topic. Just like toxic masculinity. We all knew what it was. We just didn't have that word for it or that term right. for it. Um right. but so she was writing before all that stuff and I haven't I haven't like read any follow ups from her about like, you know, are these in her book? But I I see them there. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Like that's one of the signs of patriarchy is that you end up with, uh, if you're going to have a warlord, you'd end up with a bunch of mini warlords because all the big yeah. warlord has to do is just control the mini warlords. And there you've got a system of governance. <laughs> yep. Um, I mean, and that's, uh, that's the way a lot of the band directors that you, you mentioned, that's the way a lot of them um, operated. You know, I, I remember being exposed to, to notions that like, um, you know, the section leader had to pay the price. Yes. You know. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, too. It was fun. So as, as we're talking about all this, it's fun to, to look at, like, the change 
so I, I was in your band j- just to let the audience in on this. I, I was in um, my dad's band in my freshman year of high school um, uh, at Toke High in, in Lodi, California. Um, and uh, so I got to experience your leadership firsthand there. Um, not that that was the first time or anything, but that's kind of the it's, it was the center of a lot of your professional work. Um, right. And then got to be in your band at uh, California State University at Chico um, back in what? Ni- well, and at McNeese as well. Um, yeah. So from yeah. 99 through 2003 ish, somewhere in there. Um, somewhere in there. And it, it was neat seeing like, because you taught me um, a lot about the leadership principles and stuff back in the 80s. It was I didn't, I'm not sure I caught it at the time because I was still very much trying to replicate all of those, right? Um, right. But I, your leadership style had changed. Oh, yes, definitely. And um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because one of my mentors, one of my top mentors, Ken Bloomquist, it was interesting to know about him in his early career uh, at Michigan State and then to go there and watch him evolve in just the, uh, the three years I was there with him to watch him evolve into a collaborative conductor. Oh, wow. Yeah, and his leadership style, how it changed. And um, I remember specifically uh, how happy he was with my conducting until I conducted a, a, a Bach piece. And he wondered, he was backstage getting ready to come on and conduct and as I was conducting, I had the, the horns and saxes emphasize this one section. And he came running out to the front to find out why the musicians were possibly doing that. So he came running out and, and looking, looking through the curtains, and he sees that I'm creating that sound. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and we would always have our meeting afterwards to talk about how things went. Anyway, that Monday morning, he says, I want you to watch this. This isn't the way it should be done. Oh! <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he he rarely ever made a comment um, that put his interpretation on top of mine. Yeah. Um, but, but he, at that point, he did, and it was such a weird feeling, but I'm sure that's what he had always done before. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff I heard uh, from other people that, you know, just beware, he's going to make you do it the way he would do it. And that was the only time that ever happened. And um, my ex- my explanation did not necessarily um, uh, make him happy. <laughs> <laughs> so so this, is, this is amazing because it, um, it, for me, it's a little window into why I ended up being a coach. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I found as a, as a teacher and a leader... I was at my strongest. I was at my my best, my, and my group was at its best when I was not telling people how it should be, but instead asking questions and and having to do my own work internally of of curiosity and being like, "So where's this come from? What's you know what's here for you? What what did you hear right. there?" Right. Um, right. That that's when I was my, at my best as a teacher. So why the hell would I do anything else? You know. Right. Um, right. And that doesn't mean I'm devoid of opinions, but that's the, that became, that's the center for me of my, of my coaching practice. Um, and it, you know, when was I at my best as a pastor? 
It was when I was sitting with people in just untenable situations and not giving them answers, but just asking questions. When, you know, when was I at my best as a teacher? Um, sitting in the struggle with somebody, you know, that's so, so yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things, I don't know, I hear that in, in Hook's book also, because that moment with Bloomquist, he was, he was reverting to a patriarchal way of correcting, right? Yeah, the, the way that he knew worked, the way yeah. that he was taught. Yeah, yeah. that produced yeah. results that people, yeah. you know, appreciated. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was, you know, I mean, that, that was that, as, as I was reading the book and thinking about all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, let's see. That brought us something else, but it left me already. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about you, but the notion of leading and teaching by unknowing, by uh, literally by curiosity instead of expert opinion, is about as far from where I started as a teacher 25 years ago as, as, as it can be. And maybe it was just because I was in my 20s where I thought I needed to be the expert on everything. Talk about your great white maleness. That was it. But I think there's more to it than that. I think I think a lot of experiences teaching where I had to sit with somebody shoulder to shoulder and was dedicated to trying to figure out how to 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 help them move forward. And the number of times when I had to acknowledge that it wasn't because of my expertise that the person moved forward, <laughs> that it was because of some accidental thing at first and eventually some very on purpose things that I began to have to hold back my thoughts about something and instead just simply ask questions and be curious. Um, and I'm not alone in that. I've had a lot of people teach me, try to teach me this. And a lot of times when I refuse to learn it, but I'm really glad and thankful for where I am now and getting to have that part of the conversation with my dad was was really incredible because I got to watch him uh, go from that guy who needed to be the expert um, to somebody who really did like and and would acknowledge it with his leaders, who would uh, sit back and go, yeah, well, all right, that was a mistake. I kind of wondered about this. Here's what I saw, and uh, so what do we do with this? who was willing to take that journey with 20-year-olds all over again and has been taking that journey for 40 years of teaching. And he kind of knows what's going to happen a good portion of the time as somebody who's been doing it that long. But even this 60-year-old, 70-year-old man could look at these situations and go, they're going to grow more if I get out of the way. Reminds me how important that is. And it reminds me that if, well, bluntly, if a boomer can do it, because we're all pretty hard on boomers these days, I'm pretty sure the rest of us can start learning how to do this more often, too. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to talking with you more on Monday. <laughs>